0: for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: I'm just driving between Fort William and Inverness, down the Great Glen, one of the great highways of Scotland, through the Highlands, and we're just going through Spain Bridge, and it reminds me that there's actually a commando memorial here, because this is where the commandos trained in the Second World War in one of the toughest environments that the UK had on offer. And I've been here before with some World War II veterans, commando veterans. It's been a while since I've been here, so I thought I might just look in, see how it's doing. it's cold out. Once I'm out of the car, it's pretty cold. I'm walking up to the deserted memorial. It shows three commandos looking out across the glen, across the ground on which they trained and which they prepared for their operations all over Europe. Commandos were Churchill's brainchild, really. He wanted to set Europe aflame. If he couldn't fight, after Dunkirk, the defeat of the British and French armies in 1940, he couldn't fight Germany conventionally on the continent. He thought he could raise a band of elite warriors that could be landed, can inserted support, local resistance efforts. To fight Nazi Germany, not with a sledgehammer, but with a a series of well-aimed, lethal needle pricks. This is a suitable memorial for one of the most remarkable units in the Second World War, and I think they were made remarkable by training in this brutal, brutal environment. Winston Churchill paid a tribute to the commandos. It's inscribed in a brass plaque on this memorial. It says, We may feel sure that nothing of which we have any knowledge or record has ever been done by mortal men which surpasses their feats of arms. Truly, we may say of them, when shall their glory fade? Well, not yet. Not yet. They train around here at Achnacarry Castle, one of my favourite castles in Scotland, because it's home to the Clan Cameron. And as anyone who knows about the Jacobite uprisings of the 18th century knows, the Clan Cameron were probably the most ferocious supporters of the exiled Stuart family. Donald Cameron of Lochiel, the clan chief, was one of Bonnie Prince Charlie's first and most important supporters. So you know what? I'm going to see if anyone's at home. I'm going to go knock on the door. Let's see if the modern Lockheel is around, talk about his ancestor. Bear with me. Nice. All right, where are we going? A few phone calls later, folks, and I've managed to get myself an invitation to Achnacarry Castle to meet Donald Angus Cameron, the 27th chief of the clan Cameron, whose ancestors fought at Bannockburn and Culloden. He's known simply as Lockheel.
0: T minus 10. The atomic bomb dropped Nine. on Hiroshima. God
2: save the king. No black, white unity till there is Five. first and black unity. Never to go to war with one another
0: again. And liftoff, and the shuttle has cleared the tower.
2: And then it says signposted, uh, Gare
0: Locky?
1: oh we're just crossing the caledonian canal that brings back the old memories i did that at a family holiday once when i was a kid we sailed from the west coast of scotland right the way through to inverness on the east coast via loch ness and this is a particular staircase of locks here i remember sweating away opening and closing the sluice gates when i was getting my dad shouting at me happy memories i think we're driving up to the big house do we keep going here
2: oh uh, yeah that's the museum
1: just pulling into the gate now and we're driving up to this kind of crenelated stately home. So it's a Victorian, it's a kind of gothic stately home with a nod to its military past. Once upon a time, these defenses weren't just for show because this would have been the HQ of a a powerful warlike clan. Hi there. Right, here we go. Uh, Hello, sir, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Dan. Well, let me just say that the house now feels like a beautiful, almost a sort of stately home. Was it once, was there a kind of military stronghold? Was there a castle on this
2: spot, or have, have things moved? No, the original castle, which was made of timber, was about 500 yards away, and was burnt by Cumberland soldiers in 1746.
1: So the British government burned it
2: down? Yeah. And then this was built in about 1804, started by that man behind me, who was the 22nd chief.
1: How are you different from a an English aristocrat south of the border from Somerset or something?
2: How are things different up here? What does a clan chief mean? Clan means children in Gaelic. That's what clan means. And so a clan really was a group of people who owed allegiance to the main man if you like the most powerful guy and they probably took his name so the clan Cameron was probably a mixture of three clans sub-clans and they all intermarried and took the name Cameron and that's how the clan originated.
1: Did the clan chiefs have more power over the people of their clan of their area than again they're an equivalent living down in East Anglia or Bedfordshire or something? Yeah,
2: much more. Much, much, much more. Because I think that the chief would have given tenancies to a whole lot of people and they would have given it to taxmen or whatever. And in return, those people would be expected to fight for the chief should he ever require them.
1: So the chief would uh, give out parcels of land, and in return they had to fight. Yeah. And presumably they were masters of sort of guerrilla warfare, using the hills and the mountains. And yeah. they it must be very difficult for English troops lumbering up
2: from the south to yeah. have any chance against these clansmen. Yeah, I think it was, and I think that the guerrilla warfare continued all the way through. How many
1: clan chiefs? still exist and live on the land that their ancestors held, you know, hundreds of years before, like you. I mean, are you quite unusual in modern Scotland?
2: I think we're probably quite unique in that we still have quite a lot of the land, which we had before. Less than we had, but still quite a lot.
1: This estate proved very desirable during the Second World War. It had everything needed for commando training. How did that come about?
2: I have a feeling almost the whole of the North Scotland was a sort of restricted area. And... It was very much Churchill trying to get commanders to go and fight overseas to upset the Germans. And there were 25,000 came here during the war. Seven-week, grueling course. And then they got their green berry at the end of it. Colonel Vaughan, he was the the main man. But 25,000, all nationalities, mostly Brits, obviously, but Free French, Dutch. American American Rangers came here, for instance. So it's quite international. And were they based in the house? The instructors were. This was the officers' mess here. They all had mizzen huts out in the park, which is where they slept and ate and whatever. But the instructors were in this house.
1: And I've met a couple of the veterans who talk about how tough it was.
2: <laughs> in the beech trees here, they had a climbing thing with long ropes and. And then they had a rope across the river which they had to slide down with live ammunition going on underneath them. There's, I think, one or two deaths here in the training because they use live ammunition. When they first came to Spion Bridge, they got off the train and carrying a full kit, they had to be at to carry within a certain time, or they were RTU'd return to unit.
1: Right, so that was the hurdle had to jump the, from the train to here.
2: Yeah in Philkitt.
1: Wow.
2: And th- they did a lot of damage here, actually, I mean, you can't really see because of the rain, but they started a fire up on that hill, which lasted three days and three nights, and burnt down a whole lot of the old Caledonian forest.
1: And you can still see the damage now?
2: Yeah. And they burnt the roof off this house, and they left a lot of unexploded ammunition. We've had to get the bomb disposal people up from Faz Lane on more than one occasion, because we found unexploded mortars and hand grenades and whatever. Anyway, we love them, despite all that.
1: Lockheel, thank you very much for having me in your house and telling me all about your
2: wonderful history. It's been my pleasure and very nice to see you.
1: Yeah, great. You listen to Dan Snow's History Hit. Don't give up on us just here.
2: there's more coming. I'm a spy, doing whatever spies do. But what am I gonna whip out of my pocket next? Careful. In this special month of Patented, we're celebrating the 70th anniversary of James Bond by having a look at some of the inventions that have changed espionage. From gadgets and their creators to the cars and cocktails that make Bond look oh so effortlessly cool. Join me, Campbell, Dallas Campbell, on Patented, A History of Inventions, where I will have my can on a string up against the walls of some of the best historians in this field. Look forward to your company.
3: Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and
0: Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful. Wi Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out, you cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift... By visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Huge thanks to Lockheel for having us in his historic house. But after I got back from my trip to Scotland, I had the bug. I want to find out more about these commandos that I can carry. So I turned to my good friend. He's been on this podcast before. He's an absolute legend. He's a commandos expert. He's a former Royal Marine himself. He is a walking, talking encyclopedia of Royal Marine history. It's Monty Halls. He knows everything there is to know about the Royal Marines and the commandos, including what they went through in Akinakari. Monty, good to talk to you, buddy. Uh, Good to see you again, Dan. How are you? I'm good, but I'm wondering, there's been Royal Marines around since the 17th century, but we now call them Royal Marine Commandos. Where do commandos come from? Now, that's 80 years ago, so it
3: wasn't some sort of brilliant tactical pivot by Churchill. It was Churchill who came up with the idea, and indeed came up with the name. Commandos, because as I'm sure you know, he was a war correspondent in the Boer War, and he watched devet commandos—these small groups of highly trained, sort of fieldsmen who could shoot a fly's eyebrows off at 800 yards. Incredible horsemen, and he watched them run rings around a 250,000-strong British army, and it made a huge impression on him. So. After Dunkirk in June 1940, which was an unmitigated disaster, as everyone knows, Britain was left in the situation that they could only do very basic infantry operations. As about 350,000 soldiers were evacuated off the beach of Dunkirk, and they left all their heavy kit. They left everything. So Churchill became a huge advocate for the commando model. Interesting. I was doing a bit of research into this. There were a number of names put forward for these new elite troops, and one of them was the Night Panthers. So I could have been a Night Panther, which I think is a missed opportunity, quite frankly.
1: Monty, I'm fairly convinced you have described yourself as a Night Panther before. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's (laughs) certainly
3: not in a conflict context, but there we go. Yeah. Um, So things happen really quickly. It's been really interesting to look at this in the context of our modern status and inability to do anything administratively and logistically at speed. With our defence, with our armed forces, everything takes ages. So two weeks after Dunkirk, the first commando raid was launched. It was a disaster. Of course it was, because they just threw a bunch of people together and said, right, you're going to get some boats, you're going to get a France and um, kill some Germans. That was broadly their remit. And amazingly, they all made it back in one piece. There was only one injury, and that was a guy called Colonel Dewar, who was the guy who actually came up with the whole concept of how these guys are going to operate. A couple of weeks later, there was another one, Operation Ambassador on Guernsey, which was even worse. And at the end of it, Churchill said, right, if we're going to do this, we've got to do it properly. So that's when the commando model really started to be formed. And of course, that's what's led to ACNA because originally, army units were asked to train up their own commandos, but that didn't work. They needed centralised training, they needed an inspirational, brilliant figure to run this training. And they found a World War I veteran called Charles Vaughan, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Vaughan. And he basically set up ACNA Carry. So it was organised in December 1941. And by February... 1942, the first commandos were arriving, and of course, the Royal Marines only became commandos really in 1942. Before that, it was the army commandos. Every time an army commando meets a Royal Marine commando, even today, they're like, hey, we were the originals, fellas. You just came along when all the hard work had been done. We were the original commandos. So the Royal Marines only came in in 1942, essentially.
1: And yet the Royal Marines are the ones who've carried the tradition on. So talk to me about the, the training. Talk to me about Achnar Carry. It sort of looms. Everyone still talks about it. It's just become a thing of legend, hasn't it? It
3: is a citadel. It's an iconic location for every Royal Marine and every commando who's ever existed in the last 80 years. And why is it perfect? Well, it's perfect because it's a long way from anywhere. So that's one of the reasons. And the reason that was important was obviously security to train up this new elite band of brothers, as Churchill called them. The Butcher and Bolt Brigade was one of the expressions he used, as in, they're raiders. Nowadays, when Royal Marines do their commando tests, when anyone does their commando tests, you carry 22 pounds of equipment for every test. And the reason is, that's enough to keep you going for 24 hours. The commandos were never thought to be in theatre for longer than... 24 hours. So, Aknakari was chosen, okay, so it's remote, it's also very difficult terrain, it's one of the rainiest places in Britain. So training there is going to be arduous, it's going to be tricky. It's owned by the Camerons of Loch Eel, and Lord Cameron was a real patriot. So he was like, yes, of course, I will give you the house, and I'll give you the grounds, and you can train up the commandos here. As I was researching this prior to us chatting, down, I was like, oh, it's really funny that so many things in ACNA carry just became woven into the DNA of the modern Royal Marines. Certain things were put down there that just became woven into the DNA. And what's one of them? Officers and other ranks all trained together. You don't have like training for officers and training for other ranks. These are commandos. If they're going to wear the green beret, They all have to do the same stuff together. And that applies today as much as it did back then. They created a buddy system. So each recruit, as it were, and bear in mind, these were enlisted men who were already experienced soldiers who'd volunteered to become commandos. Each one of them had a a mucker in training and they did everything together. It's the buddy system. And that still exists in the modern commando training center as well. So it's really interesting to sort of delve into that a bit. And the other thing that made it perfect, it was seven miles away from Spearbridge Bridge railway station. So the recruit commanders, trainee commanders, wannabe commandos, turned up at Spearbridge. Bridge. They had 60 pounds of kit that they'd been asked to bring with them. And they got off at Spearbridge. Bridge and they had one hour to get to the gates of Carry, And if they didn't make that hour, they were back on the 330 train that took them back south. That was the instant filter. And there's a hill en route of that seven miles, a very steep hill called Heartbreak Hill. And what do you know, next to the commander's training center down in Devon, now where you do the 9 miler, there's a the Heartbreak Hill. So it's really woven into the DNA, really, of the organisation
1: you've been through that training. A lot of people listen to this and be like, yeah, I reckon I can do that. Is it the fact that you're already sleep deprived, you're wet, you're kit? It's the fact that you're not doing it in your nicest trainers after a, a proper night's rest with lots of little energy pouches. Is it the cumulative effect that's so hard or is it just the, the sheer scale of the obstacles that you guys have to overcome?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. And lots of people have lots of different approaches and touching on the training that took place in Acne it's really interesting to see it was elemental really elemental. They were out in the elements all the time. And it toughened them up. They became feral and hardened. And that was one of Vaughan's things, you know, the camp commandant's thing, was that he felt in World War I, the young Tommies that came out just weren't ready for the environment, let alone fighting. So they degraded very quickly. And Vaughan really didn't want that to happen. So he was like, right, we're going to toughen these, Lads up, from day one. That's psychologically as well. So, you know, I mentioned that seven mile run to the camp. And if you didn't make it, that's it. You were back on the train. As you walked into the camp, there was a row of graves next to the entrance. That's the first thing you saw with each headstone saying, this man didn't seat cover when he was under fire. This man didn't advance to contact properly. This man lost concentration. This man, that was the first thing. It's like, this is real. We're going to war. You're probably going to die. You know, it was that sort of brutal. But what they were trying to do is get them really inured to the environment. That still exists now. You know, that's a big part of it. That sort of physical debilitation. These environments are so harsh and so hard. So that was definitely part of this thing. But add a layer on top of that is taking people right to the edge physically in terms of asking them what to do. So the training culminated in commando tests. And uh, the final test was a 36-mile yomp, essentially, to the top of Ben Nevis, which is conveniently the summit is 18 miles away from Achnacarry, And they had 36 hours to do it. But they had to spend a night in the field undercover, basically. And then they also had a 14-miler that they had two hours, 10 minutes to do. And interestingly, they had a Tarzan assault course that they needed to do. And that was creating ropes over rivers. It was getting over obstacles. Really, really elemental stuff. All the while, the last exercise, all the while, they were under live fire. So live rounds. So 41 commandos were killed during training under live fire, basically blown up or shot or whatever. And I think a lot of that continues. The live fire bit doesn't. But you asked Dan right at the start of my long diatribe about the training, what is it that gets people through? And Woody Allen said that 98% of success in life is turning up. An old and bold Marine said to me at the start of my training, just turn up to the next day, just be there the next day, 24 hours, just get through it. And then you can give up at the end of that day. But what do you know? Why don't you just do one more day? You said one more day at a time.
1: Monty, there's a, lots of people out there going, every time you and I post anything on social media about some heroic World War II commando raid, people go, oh, these days everyone's too soft. In your experience... And you've not only been through this yourself, but you've worked really closely with the generation of absolute legends who were in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. Is that true? Or is actually the thing about this, because what you're describing in Akham Kari sounds like it's out of my league, but do you think actually that's what we're all capable of? And it's just a matter of training and preparation and culture and spirit. For the book and the TV series, I
3: had to interview a lot of the Falklands Marines because it was the 40th anniversary of the Falklands Conference. And I spoke to Julian Thompson, who was Brigade Commander of the Royal Marines. You couldn't be a prouder man to wear the Green Barrier. You really couldn't. He's a commander to his absolute tiptoes. And I said, what do you think of the young lads going through now? He said, they're not as good as we were. They're better. They're better than we were. And the reason is that they've got a huge amount of sort of technology to get their heads around. Modern warfare is a very technological games, you've got that sort of intellectual hurdle as well and when I was looking into the acne carry training it was so elemental like one of the tests was basically getting a pine tree the trunk of a pine tree with like 20 of you and throwing it backwards and forwards to each other until one of the groups didn't want to do it anymore <laughs> it's really that elemental that ain't like that now The guys and girls going through commando training have to be phenomenally bright as well as physically capable.
1: And that training paid off, right? I mean, the wartime operations, it's so interesting that you described the failures at the beginning. And I always love that because it reminds us how important failure is and how so many of the things that we try begin in failure. But by the end, you know, whether it's Claymore in Norway, going up to uh, the Lofoten Islands to steal the communication equipment from the Nazis, San which we've done on this podcast a while ago, Dieppe. These are legendary, some of the greatest of commando, you might call them, special forces combined missions of all time. And so that training kind of paid off, right? Yes, it did. And perhaps the epitome of a commando raid
3: was Dieppe. And the reason Dieppe was such a shining example of what this new group of sort of elite warriors could do it's because the main operation was a disaster. So mainly Canadians, basically. It was an absolute horrendous, you know, the casualties are unbelievable. But Lord Lovett, who's about the epitome of a World War II commando, little pencil tash, rather dashing, you know, a bit of a cove. I think he was a bit of a cove. And he trained his team for that, his group of commandos on his own estate, number four commando, I think it was. And instead of doing the main raid bit, they went around and silenced a battery of guns that was potentially going to fire on the main force. And they did it using stealth, intelligence, huge fitness, close quarter fighting skills. They didn't take one casualty. So they took out all of the guns and then they extracted in the boats and they disappeared. And it was so vivid. Now, Churchill was quite guilty about Dieppe. He got Dieppe wrong. They ended up going in under cover of daylight. They didn't have air cover. They didn't have a barrage before they went in. It's one of the reasons that it was such a massacre. But Churchill thought Dieppe was the moment that it really turned because that was like, wow, look what this new group of elite soldiers can actually do, compared to a simultaneous large-scale raid that is just utterly disastrous. So, And you mentioned there, Dan, learning from failure, that Dieppe is kind of one of the reasons that D-Day was a success, is so many things were learned in Dieppe about what you can't do, assaulting a bitch.
1: You've already said a lot about the legacy of the wartime Commandos and Akhnakari, literally there's still places at the Commando Training Centre down in the West Country, which are named after that. You still do the same things. So that clearly that legacy endures.
3: Yes. Well, on the main drag in the Commando Training Centre, one of the first things you see on the right-hand side is an old Nissen hut, like a wooden Nissen hut. Now, Akhnakari, it wasn't a training base when they took it over. So they had to sort of transform everything. They ended up with 52 Nissen huts there. At one time, they had 2,000 people going through it, and 150 officers going through. So they had to build a lot of these temporary structures. And out of interest, the people going through weren't just British commandos. You had French, you had Belgian, you had Canadian. Most surprising of all, you had Germans going through, the free Germans, essentially. So Jewish people who might have escaped Germany, they were trained as commandos as well, because obviously, they're invaluable knowledge of the land that these guys were going into. But that Nissen hut, it's not from Akna Carry, It's actually from when the Commando Training Centre was established, which was in the 50s, which is when the whole commando role was handed over to the Royal Marines. And that Nissen hut has been left there to say, this is where you come from, chaps. This is your heritage. Every time you go anywhere, Commando Training Centre, you have to go past that hut. Yeah, which is good. A little visual your reminder of your
1: DNA and your heritage and who you represent, really. Amazing. And just lastly, you're a great ambassador for the Marines. That ethos continues today, right? The idea of highly trained, skilled, thoughtful, clever soldiers attacking from the sea or not. So the legacy lives on in the men as well.
3: Yes. More than ever. More than ever. And the reason is think of future commando force within the Marines at the moment. And the future commando force are small groups of really highly trained, they're tier two special forces. And they're trying to roll it out across the whole of the Royal Marines to essentially work behind enemy lines, to create chaos in logistics chains, to create confusion within the the ranks of the enemy. And future commando forces proved to be devastatingly effective, and is now being rolled out by the army as well. And of course, that's in the spirit of Vaughan and Churchill and Dudley Clark back in the 40s, who were like, we need raiders, basically. And the reason it's so applicable now, look at Ukraine. So Ukraine has faced, in particular in the early days of the invasion, overwhelming numbers. But they had small groups of well-trained men who wreaked havoc, basically, trained by the Green Berets in America, who took their name from the Green Beret. So it's devastatingly effective, now more so than ever.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. Churchill will be very pleased to hear that. Monty, thank you so much for coming on the pod and uh, sharing all your knowledge about commandos, the Marines, and Akinakari carry with us. Tell everyone what your fantastic book is called. Uh, it's called Commando, Britain's Ocean Warriors. I always think this every time we hang out, you embody that commando ethos, that culture, that pride. You personally kind of uh, do link those generations together. You know, you still work a lot with the young folks. Can you imagine your, who you'd be without the commandos? As you know, I talk a good game. But I never fired
3: a shot in anger. I was a bit of a generation that just never really went into conflict. So I'm in awe of what the lads that I interviewed did. Just completely in awe. They're my heroes, you know. Yes, it is so defining. It's a really interesting thing. It is a brotherhood, and it does come to define the way you conduct yourself, and the way you go through life, and the way you face obstacles. Is you think, well, I can't not do this because I'm a bootneck. And a boot a name for a Royal Marine. So it does become really defining. And I often think it's a wonderful thing that that identity. That you have such a strong sense of identity. Makes me incredibly boring at dinner parties. But it is quite nice to have that identity, I think.
1: It's not true, listeners. He's a he's an absolute laugh at dinner parties. I can <laughs> attest to that. Um thanks, Monty. No worries. Huge pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
3: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad free and watch hundreds